Hey listeners, this week Matt and I decided to unlock one of our Patreon episodes to give you a taste of what you can find over on our Patreon. Enjoy this episode covering the very first episode of Law & Order SVU, and head on over to RippedHeadlinesPod.com to find the link to our Patreon to sign up now. Hey listeners, today's episode deals with topics of sexual assault, rape, torture, and other war crimes. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to these topics ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on our website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Matt, we're recording our first Patreon episode. I'm so excited. I can't believe we're here. I know we've been talking about this for a while off air and then even a little bit on air and it's finally happening. I'm just excited to even, like, get into the SVU world a little bit. Oh, my God. Me, too. Because I'm still watching—you know I'm still watching SVU currently. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome to our first ever Patreon episode where we are going to recap SVU and the true crimes that inspired the episode. Oh, yes. And in case you are subscribing to our Patreon after only listening to a couple of episodes, which if you are, thank you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, we are—this is ripped from the headlines. Yes, and that's Matt, and I'm N. Yes, and we are normally a fact and fiction podcast that deals with law and order, traditional law and order episodes, and then one of us recaps the episode, and then the other one of us will research the true crime, and we try to keep— Um, ourselves in suspense by not researching the other person's true crime yes and so this episode will be just like that but with law and order svu instead and you are the recapper i am the recapper which i was a little relieved that we decided to let me be the recapper for the first episode it worked out well (laughs) uh yeah uh researching it was a challenge but Uh. we'll get there yeah, and the format of this episode is a little different as I go through it. Normally with our Law & Order episodes, it's like the first half is Law, the second half is Order. And this one's mm-hmm. kind of like an just, you know, SVU is a little different. It's like just an episode, so. Yeah, it's a lot of Law and not as much Order. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But there are some standout moments in this episode, so I'm excited to hear you recap it. I know. I hope I, I hope I highlighted the, the good parts. There's a lot to go over in this episode. I imagine there's a lot to go over in the true crime, too. It sure is. Whew. Well. I think let's do it. All right. I'm so ready. Okay. So we went all the way back to season one, episode one of Law & Order SVU for you folks. The title of this episode is Payback. Ooh. Bum, bum, bum. Yikes. And then, you know, the title means they're getting payback. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I like it better when they're a little creative with the title. Yes. This And just for context, this episode aired on September 20th, 1999. Oh, so, that's right. It was a full decade after Law & Order premiered. Yes. So this is, 99. you know, we're jumping around a little bit. Oh, um, we're going to get some fun early 2000s fashion in a, in a few episodes, I bet. I know. I'm excited. This yeah. was two days after my birthday in 1999. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Congratulations, I guess. <laughs> Happy you. birthday. I made it. <laughs> <laughs> made it through 99. Ooh, that was 14. That was a hard year. Ugh, okay. Yeah. So the episode opens, and it's a rainy New York City evening, 
and detectives Olivia Benson and Elliot Stabler arrive at what appears to be a pretty wild accident involving a police, uh, uh, no, no, sorry, a cab and a pole. Can we just talk for a minute about how insanely hot Chris Maloney is? I'm so glad you are of that opinion too, because I talk about Ugh. it a lot. <laughs> he has such a good butt. It's oh ridiculous. Oh my God. It is like perfect. Did yeah. I ever tell you he came into one of my Starbuckses when I was working there, but I wasn't there that day? Oh my God. You must have passed out. And it was here. It was in, in our town. You must have passed out from rage. I was so angry. <laughs> Oh my god. Of course. I walk in the next day and they're like, do you know who was here yesterday? Ugh. I almost walked right back out. Did you, I forget, have you watched Pose? No, not yet. <gasps> he's on Pose. Oh god. Oh, I heard. I heard he is. Only for a couple episodes, but he's good on it. I like him. I'm, I'm watching the current, like, Elliot Stabler series, The Lone Order. Oh, Criminal um, Intent or whatever? No. Um, oh, Organized Crime. Yeah, yeah. I like it so far. I'm into it. Yeah, great. So... Stabler and Benson are first view of our iconic characters. Mm-hmm. And the man in the taxi is, if you saw the accident, it's obvious that he's passed away. He's perished. And he is a white male or yeah, he's a white male in his thirties with a license that reads Victor Spicer. He's got multiple stab wounds and detectives are like, okay, well, you know, crime, but why special victims unit? You know, we know mm-hmm. this is where, we're talking about sexually based offenses that are considered especially heinous. Yes. And he's like, oh, I forgot to mention his genitals. His genitals have been removed. Yeah. And then we get the opening credits rolling. And I was a little disappointed because they're only 45 seconds long. Oh, my God. That's half the length of regular Law & Order. I was all ready to settle into something and I got I had to get right back in. I guess they got it together after a decade. Yeah. Only a decade. So don't get your eyes checked, folks. It's Captain <laughs> Kragen. Where are we? Are we? I, which it, podcast are we in? It's like an alternate universe. <laughs> yeah. So you know, he starts out as the SVU captain and is replaced on regular Law and Order. But we are a full nine years later, so things happen. He is okay. I feel like in this episode, since it's the first of the season and the series, I think they were really attempting to jam in as many types of like sensational sex crime things they could as possible. Yeah, they were definitely aiming for an attention-grabbing premiere. Honestly. And, you know, they're they're setting the scene early that the Special Victims Unit is a volunteer unit with lots of action going on. So we're in the station, and the phones are ringing off the hook. And mm-hmm. despite that there's only 10 people in the room maximum, including our cast, mm-hmm. the background audio of the scene, the chatter, is literally <laughs> like a crowded restaurant. <laughs> it, it could have been, like, at a football game. Yes. We have Detective Cassidy, who is played by Dean Winters, and who viewers might know as Mayhem from the Allstate commercials. Is he the old guy with the glasses? No, he's the young guy. He's the young guy with the overacting. Oh, the the kind of hot, stupid one who plays yeah. Liz Lemon's boyfriend on 30 Rock. Yes. Okay. Yes. I kind of like him. Me too. I like him as an actor. His character is supposed to be sort of... Um, Hot and stupid. Yeah, outrageous. And fun fact about him, he is, other than Olivia, the longest running at Law & Order SVU character. No kidding. Yeah, because he he literally leaves after the first season, but he comes back in season 14 and plays the huh. same character for like a few seasons. So Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he goes out. He, so he's being sent out to check on a person who is committing necrophilia in public. And Flo from Progressive is his partner. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Detective Munch, who we'll see as a regular, 
He is played by Richard Belzer, and he's sent as a stand-in for Stabler with Olivia because Stabler has to go to a hearing he's testifying in against a suspect who publicly exposes himself. And yes. Stabler calls him the weenie wagger. Grow up. Do you remember the Swiss cheese pervert? Oh, how could I forget? Just holding up the cheese? <laughs> yes. Honestly, if you've never heard the story of the Swiss cheese pervert, do yourself a favor and go Google it. And then go on YouTube and watch Nick Terry's animation of My Favorite Murder telling the Swiss cheese pervert story. It's perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, and this is kind of an interesting fact. The last fun fact I think about a cast member is Detective Munch. I think this is crazy. He's the old guy, right? He's the older guy, yeah. Okay. His character originated on a TV show called Homicide Life on the Street before this. Um, and then that season, that show aired for a bunch of seasons and got canceled. And then his character was given a new opportunity to be on Law & Order SVU, even though it's a different series. Oh, like Frasier almost. Exactly like Frasier. Huh. And then that character, Detective Munch, not just the actor, has gone on to guest star or make appearances on 23 seasons of network television shows. Whoa. And he's been a character that's been on TV for 20 years. Wow. Spanning all five major networks. His character. Dang. Yeah. And he is huh. currently the only fictional character played by a single actor to physically appear on more than 10 different series and one of the only to cross networks and genres in doing so. So strange. Yeah. Nuts. He's like a... Uh... He's like outside of time and reality. He is. He's like in the <laughs> nexus of the universe, just waiting to just pop in. <laughs> so we see like these crazy sort of, you know, over the top cases that are being interspersed in with our main, our main victim. We get a scene of Stapler in court testifying about, you know, the weenie wagger. And he says he didn't see the defendant expose himself, but he arrested him because two women approached him about it. And then the defendant says something, um, he says something to the defendant to kind of goat him and says like, oh, his shortcomings. His shortcomings, yeah. And, you know, indicating he's got a small package. And one of the most preposterous scenes I've ever witnessed in Law & Order so far pops, pops up next. And the defendant jumps up like a Looney Tunes character and then exposes himself to the entire courtroom, waving his arms in the air. It... It's so unbelievable. We've got to put that on social media. Oh, and nobody does anything but kind of roll their eyes. The only one who reacted at all realistically was like the prosecutor who like does like a spit take. If she had a drink in her mouth, she would have done a spit take. (laughs) Everyone else is like giggling sheepishly or like averting their eyes. Even his attorney is like, oh, bummer. Yes. Outrageous. It's so strange. Yeah. Stabler goes back to the station and describes it to Olivia. He says, he waved his flag and nobody saluted. Okay, dad joke. He's been borrowing Cragen's dad joke book. He really has. <laughs> so they get back to the main case, and because Olivia's unimpressed, she doesn't care. Yeah. Um, the victim from the car, Victor Spicer, they look him up, and he's got a record. As a matter of fact, he's still in prison at Rikers Island. So, huh? <laughs> exactly. The next scene has two important moments only. One, Captain Cragen discovers that the cab license is fake. Mm-hmm. And two, Captain Kragen is holding a big tub of red vines. And <gasps> literally the next time we went to the store, we bought red vines. Oh my God, I love red vines. <laughs> Me too. I wanted to ask you, are you red vines or Twizzlers? But I guess Twizzlers that are it. garbage. Twizzlers are plastic. Ooh, okay, I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> I'm a new convert to red vines. Hmm. I think East Coast, which I can't say anymore because this is filmed in New York, but 
East Coast for me, I've never had a red vine in my entire life until I moved to California. You're kidding. I heard what there's a song I know called Red Vines, just random, by okay. Amy Mann. And I always thought it was about vines that were red. <laughs> but <laughs> I did not know it was a candy until I moved to California. I know I'm a little out of it behind the times, but yeah, I would agree. Red huh. vines are better than Twizzlers. I, I hate to admit it. Yeah. Well, was a, thank you for your bravery. <laughs> thank you. So they go to Vict- they go to visit Victor Spicer in prison. Um, he's very ridiculous. He's wearing eyeliner for no apparent reason. And <laughs> he says that he sold his license for 100 bucks to a guy that had a kid. And it was set up by a gentleman at a coffee shop that he regulars at. And the guy had a foreign accent and probably lived in the area. Which I don't know how he would know that. He said, oh, I saw him carrying a shopping bag. He maybe lived in the area. Okay, whatever. <laughs> and then he goes to Elliot, you doing anything Saturday night? And Elliot goes, oh, I'd hurt you. Oh, oh, hey. Hurt me, Stabler. <laughs> <laughs> so they go to the shop and they ask, the coffee shop, and they ask the waitress there, who is very busy. It's like you're looking at a scene from Diner Dash. And at first, I really liked her. Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, she recognized both of the men, the real Victor and the fake Victor, both known as Victor to her. And then she makes a terribly racist comment about working with um, members of the Latinx community. And then I'm like, oh, you're trash. Never mind. Yeah. So she tells them, well, I didn't know anything. City's trash. City's awful. Hate living here. And then they're okay, fine. So they talk to another gentleman who I wasn't clear who he was, but I think he was a coworker of fake Victor. Okay. And he says that, oh, I know that guy. That That's... Actually, his name is Steven, and he's got a kid, and they're expecting a kid, and they're like, okay, so we're getting a little closer to who this person is. And then they call the dispatcher, and the dispatcher tells them that someone called the night of the crime asking for Spicer's hours, so clearly someone was looking for him. Hmm. And Olivia wants to know who would have wanted this guy dead. Yeah. And she refers to him as a a disco queen. There's a lot of that in this episode. Mm. Yeah, there's some not great comments. A lot of un necessary queer bashing bashing in the storyline that doesn't seem to fit no so he's soon identified as steven panacek and they go to his place because they know him now and they coincidentally run into his wife and kid as they're like arriving home from the grocery store Mm -hmm. and they tell her who they are and she immediately knows it's about steven she sort of has a breakdown and she drops her groceries she's very upset she understands something must have happened and i don't know if approaching a woman on the street um with her five-year-old kid is a great idea to tell her that her husband's passed away yeah i mean i guess there's no place to deliver that news that's good i mean can you the kid is hearing his father is dead like can yeah you, i mean i i think i would say like can we step inside or yeah. you know can we talk to you alone for a moment <laughs> yeah i mean in their defense like they said who they were and she was like it's steven so but in the next scene, they handle the things a lot better. Stapler stays with the kid, keeping him distracted. And Olivia finds out from the wife that Stephen was here um, from Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic. I'm not sure what year this was. And he is there illegally. And so she's like, okay, maybe this will give us some sort of motive. In the next scene, the sta- they're in the station and we find out that the victim was stabbed 37 times. And and Stapler says, still reads gay to me, which I don't really get at all, but okay. And then in front of the cab, 
um, they find out that in the front of the cab, they find a fingernail with red polish. And then Stabler makes a really derogatory remark about the trans community. Mm-hmm. And everybody finds it kind of cute and laughs. So after this disgusting display, Munch and Cassidy approach a man who had previously been with Spicer. And he's married to a woman so that, you know, he had paid his fines. He got caught being with a sex worker and they get very little out of him as expected. I don't know what they were expecting to get out of him, but they do make sure they tease him for being with a guy. Yeah. Really spectacular. So then they speak to an art gallery owner who was another client of Spicer's. Do you remember, sorry, just a quick throwback. I feel like the third or fourth episode of the original Law and Order that we covered was about the like gay man who was killed and they interview a bunch of like uh, his associates and whatever Mm -hmm. that aired a full decade before this episode and did infinitely better talking about the queer community than this episode did. Oh my God. Way better. And this is supposed (laughs) to be specifically about like sex crimes. Yeah. It's not a lot of sensitivity. Yeah. And we're talking about a sex worker. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. They speak to an art gallery owner because every time they have a gay character in an episode, they have to speak to an art gallery owner. <laughs> yeah. And he says that they've been with, that, you know, they've been with Spicer and it's no secret to their bisexual wife. They have a very happy marriage. They're very open and they have no shame about their sex life. And I do like the inclusion of this character because yep. of like how sex positive they are and they're not at all ashamed. And even when like, being asked questions that are supposed to be provocative, there's no reaction. They're like, yeah, whatever, who cares? Right. But I didn't think that they had to be surrounded by paintings of open mouths and saying that they only liked Spicer because of his orifice and being portrayed in the very predictable, predictable, like dandy type of queer character in the nineties, you know, like all that. I didn't think that was necessary. No, but they talked to him and get again, no information. Also, I may be mistaken because you're the recapper. And so I watched the episode, but wasn't like paying the closest of detail. But none of this ends up being relevant, does it? None, none. They go talk to all these people who had sex with him just to be like, oh my God, look at these people that had sex with a man that are married to women. Right. (laughs) So back at the station, Munch is going on about a conspiracy theory, which is just a huge part of his character throughout the whole series. So it's not surprising when you see more of him. Yeah. It seems like pointless, but it's just showing you he loves conspiracy theories. Who doesn't? I mean, I do. Then, and it's, oh, and it's a funny connection. It's a JFK conspiracy theory, and we just did uh, the Marilyn Monroe story. We did. So then Detective Jeffries, who makes a very strange comment. We haven't seen her yet. She's, um, she's got like blonde, frizzy hair. She's only in season one. Hmm. She comes in and makes a really strange comment that suggests that Munch doesn't have an active sex life. Why? <laughs> it's wait, wait, wait a minute. Was this woman? She has the like really curly hair. She's one of the other detectives. Yeah, but I think if we're talking about the same woman, I th- believe I recognized her from. Guess where I recognized her from? Mm. Oh, I remember the actress's name is Michelle Hurd, but I don't know where she's from. Oh, Charmed. She was on an episode of Charmed. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yes, she was on an episode of Charmed probably around the same time, maybe a couple of years later. Um, but she was on an episode of Charmed as like a a, a demon, of course, because, you know, that's uh, all they ever have extra characters playing. 
Oh my god! But yeah, I'm she was on an episode right... called "Little Box of Horrors." Yes, I'm looking at the images of her from Charmed right now. Her name in the show was Katya. Yes, I recognized her immediately because I think she's got a very distinctive look, and I think she's really pretty. So Gregan and Stapler they get some info on the victim, and his name actually wasn't Stephen either. It's close though. It turns out he's also got not such a squeaky clean record, which causes them to wonder how Olivia is going to react. And we find out his name is Stefan Tanzig, and he's a Serbian war criminal who led an ethnic cleansing unit. And he's indi- he's been indicted but not convicted of 67 rapes. Yeah. Ooh. 15 of them are still living only, uh, according to Stapler, and five of them are in the New York area. So yeah. Olivia's troubled by this, but they find out from the ME that there were two different types of knives that were used to kill the victim. And so now they're already like huge workload and anxiety has just gotten doubled. Right. Cause now they're like, either there was one person holding two different knives or there was multiple people who killed him. Right. So it's like, we're trying to get answers and we got more questions. Right. And he's a war criminal. So like, <laughs> Ooh, this case is a lot hairier than we thought it was. Exactly. So Olivia, from the moment she hears this is obviously affected, even though she says she's not. And they go back to revisit the victim's wife, and she loses her cool on her immediately, and she's grilling her as to why she lied to them originally, and she wants to know, how does it feel sleeping with someone who raped dozens of defenseless, terrified women? Yeah. I mean, I get it. I get it. Yeah. But... Not really appropriate procedure or conduct. <laughs> not at all, especially because your whole like job is to be taken care of victims and survivors of these heinous crimes. Right. And in the words of Stapler and Cragen, you don't get to pick the Vic. Mm-hmm. Mm. So they visit one of the rape survivors that they know about in the city, and she's in a wheelchair. She's got scars on her face. I think she's blind, it appears to be. Yeah, she's the one with kind of like milky white eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then they ask her about Stefan, and she gets very immediately upset. It's clear, like, he's done this to her, she says. And... Olivia's like, don't worry, he's he's dead. I want to let you know he's dead. And she's immediately relieved. Yes. They visit a few other survivors until they meet Marta. And she is at work. They've seen her kid because they visited her house first and she wasn't home. And the kid is identical to Stefan's son with his wife. Right. And so they know they have the right woman. Which, what are the chances? I think they even use the same actor. <laughs> I think they did too. I you was know? like, why is that child here all of a sudden? <laughs> like the mother's DNA has nothing to do with it. Exactly. So Benson, t- Benson then takes it upon herself to independently show up at her job. And when asking about Stefan, the woman, Marta, gets very nervous. But she says, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about this. I don't know who this is. Um, she's got no marks on her hands. So Olivia's like, okay, maybe. I hope, you know, I hope I'm wrong about this. But she gets, you know a little bit more aggressive with Marta and is like, I, you know why I'm here. And, you know, I want to do you know Tanzig. And she's like, um, yes. And she's just like, well, he's dead. And she doesn't become emotional. So Benson, Benson questions it. And Marta tells her about her life. She tells her that all the men in her village were shot down. And then she was selected by Tanzig and raped repeatedly for 23 days in a row. And then she shares all the graphic details of that. And Olivia is like, Oh, okay. Well, um, I, I guess that's all I needed. Have a good day. <laughs> Gotta go. <laughs> and she walks out sheepishly. And then 
we get our first scenes with Elliot and Olivia that basically set up their storylines for the rest of the series. I won't go into it too much, but it's basically Olivia's discussing with her mom. She's having a conversation with her mom, which is one of the only ones she has with her mom throughout the whole series because her mom is not great when you learn about her. But it's just to emphasize that we learn that Olivia is actually a child who is a product of her mother's own rape. Right. And that's going to be a thing. Yeah. Throughout Elliot, the whole series. <laughs> exactly. And Elliot has two main storylines through the series, too. One of them is this one. He's at a PTA meeting with his wife, Kathy, and he's called away by work, which irritates her. So he has a hard time with work-life balance, having a family. Yeah. And we'll, I'm sure, later see how he gets personally involved in any case that involves a child because he's got kids. Yeah. Back at the station, Olivia doesn't want to believe that Marta did it, but all the evidence seems to be pointing that way. And so she's trying to present it to Elliot in a way like it's like a little kid who knows what they're saying is a lie and wrong. Mm -hmm. So they come up with a bunch of reasons ahead of time and try to present them all at once. (laughs) But Elliot's like, yeah, I don't buy it. I she sounds like she's involved, but we know there's two suspects. So let's try to find the other one. When they interview uh, the last survivor on their list, Anya Rogova. They find out that her whole family was slain by Tanzig. And she says that she's glad he's dead when they tell her. And she had nothing to do with it, though. She was at work all night. And then they see her hands, and she has red (laughs) fingernails on, which I guess she just didn't change. And she has a huge hand hand injury that's covered in gauze. And they're like, what happened to your hand? And she's like, oh, it was a kitchen accident. You know, she runs a restaurant. So, Mm -hmm. okay, fine. She denies knowing Marta when they ask her about her. And she's like, I'm very busy, so I think you should go. And I just wanted to take a moment because all of these show, all of these episodes we've seen, I just love how suspects are just able to ask detectives and cops to just leave wherever they are. And they just do. <laughs> right. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm busy. Uh, you know what? You offended me, so you got to go. And they're like, damn, we almost had her. <laughs> uh, you know, must be nice. So they go back to re-interview the man who had originally given them Stephen's, you know, quote unquote real name, even though he's Stefan or whatever. And they ask him again, like, you know, you told us when you first saw him that day that he was with two women. And do do you know what they look like? And he's like, no, I, I told you I couldn't identify them. I just saw women around. I didn't really think anything of it. And he's like, do you think they would have been able to identify you? And he's like, oh, yeah, they definitely saw me, but it was dark. I, I really wasn't paying too much attention. And they're like, okay. And then Elliot comes up with a plan where he wants to kind of like trick the suspects into implicating each other. They go arrest Marta at her job and they make a big production out of it. And as they're taking her to the car, she tells like Olivia, like, how could you? And Elliot has possibly a fake conversation with somebody on the phone or maybe just a lying conversation where he's like, oh, yeah, we got a positive ID on her from from the guy outside. And so, you know, they want to make her feel like, oh, no, we're caught because they definitely saw the guy if it's in fact them. Olivia has a moment alone with Marta where she tries to advise her to say nothing because she has a lot of guilt for having to arrest her. But they are outside of Anya's restaurant now and they're uh, Elliot goes in to arrest her. And she says, I'm going to call my lawyer then. But she goes over to the phone, and when she looks outside and sees the cops with Marta, she grabs a knife off of a guest's table and stabs herself. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Where do you think she stabbed herself? Because it was a very odd 
choreographed scene? It, uh, I'm glad you asked because I'm very unsure. When I first watched the episode, I thought it was her stomach. And then when I watched it again to just write some notes, I yeah. thought it was like her pelvis. Yeah, that's kind of where it look looks like to me. Yeah, and I don't know if that's supposed to be symbolic or not. Yeah, but, yeah, I don't know. You know, that's what happens. So she's lying on the ground. There's a big, of course, everyone's around her. Are you okay? And as she's laying there, she's bleeding out. And she says, please don't help me. And then she whispers something into Stapler's ear. And we find out shortly afterwards that she's passed away. Back at the station, Marta is confessing. She's got a lawyer present. And she says, okay, you know, we had figured out who he was. And we had recognized his voice right away when we were in the cab. And I felt overwhelmed. And then I saw Anya stab him first through the divider. And before she knows it, they both were stabbing him over and over again. They got out of the car and she had like, disconnected during the attack and she was visualizing her assault from him years prior and you know that's how it happened and ada carmichael who's in the room with them she's played by angie Harmon. um if we were watching law and order at the same time as this she would be the ada in law and order Mm. so she'll be in in 1999 (laughs) law and order look out for uh for angie Harmon taking over And she says she'll take a plea to man two if Schiff allows it. And he'll get, um, she'll, you know, be sentenced to 18 months in a psychiatric facility, probably. And they're like, okay, that's fine with us. Cragen is not as pleased with the outcome, however. And so he knows that the women planned it out. He knows that this story was not true because no one walks around carrying uh, serrated knives in their purses. Mm, that's a good point (laughs) yeah he's like i don't think a seven inch and a nine inch knife were being carried by these two women coincidentally and one of them is serrated in their purse so he's like um so how do you feel about this and olivia says i think we did the one thing that's going to allow me to sleep tonight and then craigan says it's her one get out of one get out of jail free card and stabler who by the way i want to point out is wearing tight jeans and a gray shirt now if you're curious (laughs) <laughs> really i'm 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 into it i'm really into it and uh olivia it's the last scene and he's sitting with olivia and he says she asks him what did anya whisper to you before she before she died by suicide and he says to her that she told him she wanted to be with her family and then the phones continue ringing and they're back at it again and the episode ends great job thank you i was happy to see Chris Maloney and Mariska Hargitay. I was not really thrilled with this episode, but I guess we'll read we will read it at the end. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you feel about the episode, but yeah, we can we can wait till the end. That's true. (laughs) Well, are you ready to hear the crime that this case was based off of? I only have a slight inkling just from being around you lately (laughs) and hearing some chatter, but I'm so interested to hear what this is. Okay, this case, or this episode rather, was about war crimes that occurred during the Bosnian War. Mm. And so the whole payback thing, like, essentially, the story I'm about to tell you is the story that motivated these women in this episode. Oh, okay. So we don't actually get a, like, stabbing in a cab story. Okay, okay. I'm going to give you what sort of led up to this. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. 
So, as I said, this episode was based on uh, war crimes that occurred during the Bosnian War, and particularly as part of the Prigidor ethnic cleansing campaign that occurred between 1992 and 1995. Are you going to be defining ethnic cleansing in this episode, or should I ask you, like, specifically what that means now? (laughs) So... I'll I think I'll kind I'll kind of explain it as I go on and if that doesn't seem clear pretty early on let me know. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to be talking both in general about incidents that happened during the Bosnian War as well as the cases of five specific men involved in the crimes of these wars but there are countless cases that could be talked about. These just happen to be particularly well-known ones and I'll explain why in a little bit. Hmm. Okay, so Prigidor is a city located in Republika Srpska. By the way, I just need to give a little bit of a disclaimer (laughs) that there are a lot of letters in the names of this story that are not letters in the English alphabet, and there are, like, names and words that are full of consonants in, in such a way that Again, the English language doesn't typically use, so I I did try my best to, like, look up pronunciation for everything, but I'm sure I'm going to get some things wrong. <laughs> that's, that's fine. So, Prigidor, um, again, is a city in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and the ethnic cleansing that occurred in, the, in Prigidor was an effort by the Bosnian-Serb political and military leadership against the Bosniaks and Croats or Croatians. So... Essentially, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, there are kind of like three large groups of citizens. There are the Bosnian Serbs, there are the Bosniaks, which are Muslim Bosnians, and then there are the Croats or Croatians. They're the third one. So, again, the Bosniaks are the Muslim residents of Bosnia, the Croats are another ethnic group that are native to Croatia, Bosnia, and Herzegovina. And essentially, the Bosnian Serbs um, engaged in an effort to wipe out the Bosniaks and the Croats. Okay. So, throughout this, uh, the, the Bosnian War, thousands of Bosniaks and Croats were rounded up and placed into concentration camps run by the Bosnian Serb forces. And the story that I'm going to tell you today is one of those concentration camps in a mining town named Omarska, which is in the Prigidor region. Okay. And I'm sorry, so, did you already say what year this was? Uh, between 92 and 95. Okay. So the Omarska camp was one of 700 concentration camps in Bosnia and Herzegovina beginning in 1992. On April 30th of 1992, 400 Bosnian Serb police officers seized power in the Prigidor municipality, and they seized the president, the vice president, the director of the post office, the chief of police, and other officials. So the Bosnian Serb uh, military and police forces were essentially trying to seize all political power uh, within the Bosnia-Herzegovina nation, I'll, I'll say. Okay. So once they seized power, children were prevented from going to school. Bosniak and Croat children were prevented from going to school. And radios started broadcasting anti-Muslim and anti-Croat propaganda pretty quickly. The Bosnian Serb forces destroyed a lot of cultural 
buildings and locations that were specific to the uh, Bosniak and Croat populations. So they burned down mosques. Um, the Croats are primarily Roman Catholic, so they also burned down a bunch of Catholic churches, um, as well as like other uh, museums and kind of um, historical landmarks. Yeah, landmarks. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So they were the the ethnic cleansing was the Bosnian Serb forces essentially trying to remove any of the Bosniak Muslim influence or any Croat influence or presence. Wow. Okay. And I'll I'll kind of explain a little bit of the motivation for that or the explanation anyway um, in a little bit. So that was April thirtieth, nineteen ninety two. In May of nineteen ninety two, Serb forces began heavy artillery fire on various Bosnian areas, or sorry, Bosniak areas of the municipality, uh, which forced a lot of survivors to flee their homes in order to avoid the heavy artillery fire. And it was then that the Serb military began to kind of round them up, detain them, and made them march to the concentration camps. And so they confined more than 7,000 people just in Prigidor in some of these concentration camps. Oh my God. Further efforts over the following weeks resulted in even more Bosniaks and Croatians to be seized and placed into concentration camps. And they specifically focused on imprisoning intellectuals and politicians. So, again, this was all an effort to rid the entire area of any non-Serb population. Mm, Okay. Okay. So, at the camp Omarska, Omarska was part of an old mine, and it included multiple buildings where the prisoners were detained at the Omarska concentration camp. Um, The first was what they called the administration building, which is where interrogations and killing took place. Um, Another building called the hangar building, which was used to house inmates or uh, yeah, uh, I don't want to say inmates because that implies like it was (laughs) part of like a actual correction system. Uh, So I'll uh, I'll do my best to use prisoners because they were forcibly taken. Mm. So the hangar building was where the prisoners were kind of like placed to like just exist and be and live, but it was so overcrowded that um, people would die of heat stroke. They would actually suffocate from lack of air. So that was the hangar building. They also had what was called the White House, which was used for torture of inmates. Okay. The, the Red House, where they executed prisoners. And then there was also an outdoor courtyard known as the Pista, which was where they would engage in public torture and mass killing. I was afraid of that. Yeah. So, as I said, the buildings were so packed full of prisoners that people would suffocate during the night. Uh, The entire camp was guarded by armed soldiers, and they also had landmines everywhere to prevent prisoners from escaping. So the prisoners were served one meal a day of soup and bread— and were given water from a source polluted with industrial waste, which caused dysentery and other uh, medical issues that also killed a lot of people. And the food that they were fed was often rotten. So as you can imagine, hundreds of prisoners died from starvation. And pretty much from the beginning of when they were placed into the concentration camp, they they started to be physically and psychologically tortured, beaten, raped, and killed. By reports... It appears that the people who received the worst abuse were the intellectuals and the civic leaders um, and anyone who had resisted the Bosnian Serb forces. New arrivals to the camp were 
publicly beaten with batons and rifles and placed into hot metal cages without sanitation, exercise, or food. And the cages were stacked four high, and the the ground of the cages, the floor of the cages, was just... Um, the bars? Uh, was it just bars? And so without access to toilets, prisoners were living in their <gasps> own filth, and then it would drip through the grates to the people below them. And all of this was really an intention to dehumanize the prisoners, make it clear to them that they were not considered human beings to the Bosnian Serb forces. Oh my God. Many of the prisoners, most of them, suffered pretty significant deterioration, both physically and mentally. Um, (sighs) Some prisoners experienced mental breakdowns as a result, and some of the prisoners who survived the camp stated that when people would go insane, shuddering and screaming, they would just be taken outside and killed. When they were killed, um, it was usually, it was often shooting or cutting of throats, but there was really, really often the the mode of killing was beating people to death, which people kind of note as a pretty personal way of killing somebody, right? Like it, oh, it totally. requires a lot of effort. It's very violent, et cetera. I mean, think about when people talk about the difference between like a shooting death versus a stabbing death and how personal that is. I mean, yes. beating someone to death. Could you get, that's like, there's nothing more personal than like, than yeah. strangling someone. Right. So, there was one reported incident where prisoners were also burned alive and other instances where prisoners were taken outside the camp, ordered to dig graves, and then they just never returned. So presumably they dug their own graves and then were killed and buried in those graves. Oh my gosh, I hope they weren't buried alive. Yeah. And while the exact numbers are debated, survivors of the camp reported that every day Usually at least 30, but upwards of 150 prisoners were singled out and killed in the camp every night. Jeez. But it it gets worse. So most of the prisoners at the Omarska camp were men, but a large number of them were women as well um, who were detained. And they were kind of put to work by the... Uh, Bosnian Serb forces. They were required to serve food, and they also had the job of cleaning the torture rooms. So uh. they were, they had to like clean up blood. They had to clean up all, all kinds of things of their own community. Of their own community at the Omarska camp, as well as other camps, there was pretty widespread rape and sexual assault of both men and women. It was actually an intentional strategy used by the Bosnian Serb forces to instill terror in the communities that they were attempting to kind of rid themselves of. Mm. So, and and Amnesty International talks about how rape during war is actually, it's not uncommon. It's an intentional strategy to, again, instill fear to reduce people's likelihood of willing of being willing to return to the same places and of course to inflict humiliation and shame on the targeted population yeah okay so the serb forces set up rape camps where women were subjected to repeated rape and only released when they were pregnant and beyond the point where the child could be aborted the rapes that occurred during the bosnian war were a intentional strategy of cultural eradication, because essentially when they were raping these women, the Bosnian Serb uh, military were telling them that the children that they would bear would be Serbian. Okay. 
So gang rapes were often public and in front of villagers and neighbors. And in many instances, soldiers forced the men prisoners to rape women prisoners, especially those that they were related to. (gasps) Oh, my God. Yeah. What the fuck? That is so twisted. Yeah. There are, I'm, Mm. I'm. This is all very graphic and awful, by yeah. the way, in yeah. case it wasn't clear. I actually, there, what I read about this was some of the most horrifying things I've ever read in my life. And I'm giving you the facts of it without trying to go into the gory, like, details. gory details. So it should tell you something that what I've said so far isn't the gory details. <sighs> I know. And honestly, like, I know this is a case about concentration camps, and I'm not. I shouldn't be surprised by the type of um, absolute torture and depravity that's going on inside of them. But it's, I I don't think there's anything you're going to say where I'm not going (laughs) to gasp or say, Oh my (laughs) God. (laughs) Yes. So as I said, the Bosniak and Croat populations were uh, pretty much exclusively targeted and estimates are that between 10 and 50,000 women were raped during the Bosnian War. Mm. There appears to have been also widespread rape of Bosniak and Croat men, but the articles I read talk about how the numbers are far less, but many agencies involved in the investigation and prosecution of the war crimes reported that a lot of the men they talked to refused to speak or acknowledge that rape of men occurred or that they had been assaulted because unfortunately mm. it homosexuality is very stigmatized in in this area at that time and so many of the men who did speak about being raped or sexually assaulted were actually ostracized as a result and of course of course many of the men were killed throughout this conflict and so we won't ever know their stories But as you would expect, those who experienced rape and torture uh, during the conflict experienced significant physical and psychological impacts, and many of the women reported permanent gynecological harm as a result of the repeated rapes. Also, many of the men at Omarska were castrated as part of the torture process. Okay. So, as I said, this happened... kind of in the 1992 to 1995 area or range of time. At one point, the Bosnian Serb president, whose name is Radovan Karadzic, I only have to say that once, so hopefully I got that right. (laughs) Through pressure, he he granted access to some British journalists to visit the Bosnian Serb camps. This would end up being a pretty big mistake on his part, but I couldn't ever read his logic of why he consented to it or what he was, how he was pressured into letting the journalists come visit. But it happened. And uh, independent television news reporter Penny Marshall, not Penny Marshall from Laverne and Shirley. I, I just was going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> and Channel 4 news reporter Ian Williams visited the Omarska camp. You can find footage of this online. And actually, it's as I was researching this, it was horrifying. And also, I was really glad to be given the opportunity to research this because 
I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 when all this was happening. And so I remember footage of like Bosnia-Herzegovina, Sarajevo on the television really regularly, but I was too young to really understand what was going on. So it was it was kind of a, an aspect of history I remembered but didn't understand. And now I have a um, more information about it. So it was um, a good learning opportunity for me. That's awesome. I feel the same way, except for I don't remember things like this that would be on TV when I was little just totally missed me. I didn't. Did, no interest at the time. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So um, their footage showed men and women at the camp who were like skeleton thin, half naked, mm-hmm. broken, kind of defeated looks on their faces. And um, Ed, his last name is difficult for me to pronounce. I think it's v- v- <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Viami. I'm just going to say Viami. Okay. I apologize, Ed, if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly. So he writes... He was there observing. So this is his documentation. He says, A group of prisoners have just emerged from a door in the side of a large rust-colored metal shed. They run in single file across the courtyard. Above them, in an observation post with a watchful eye hidden behind reflective sunglasses, is a beefy guard who follows their uh, weary canter with the barrel of a heavy machine gun. Their heads are shaven, their clothes are baggy over skeletal bodies, some are barely able to move— In the canteen, they line up in obedient and submissive silence and collect a meager, watery portion of beans. The men are at various stages of human decay and affliction. The bones of their elbows and wrists protrude like jagged stone from the pencil-thin stalks to which their arms have been reduced. Wow. He also reported that the men were given precisely three minutes to run from the shed to the canteen, get their food, eat their food, and run back to the shed. And anyone who did not make it back in under three minutes would be beaten or killed. (sighs) One prisoner later told investigators, the stew that we were given was boiling hot, so we all had burns inside of ourselves. The inside of my mouth was peeling. Oh my god. So, as you can imagine, these reports caused international furor, and resulted in the closing of the camps as well as several others. So the documentation that Penny Marshall, Ian Williams, Ed Viami were able to get were seen as uh, one of the major reasons that the United Nations got involved and, you know, demanded the closing of the camps and began investigating uh, various folks for war crimes that had occurred during the conflict. So the United Nations formed the International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, which goes by the uh, acronym ICTY. So if I say those words, that's the the board of folks who are investigating and prosecuting the war crimes. Okay, ICTY. Yeah. So they were established um, during these wars, and they the organization ICTY was located in The Hague, Netherlands. So here are the five men's cases that I'm going to discuss. By the way, all of them pled innocent and denied that Omarska was anything but, quote, a run-of-the-mill holding center for prisoners of war. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here, folks. So their trials, um, and there were, of course, as you would expect from, like, international war crimes, there were multiple trials. Some of them were kind of trying multiple people at once. Some of them were trying individual people. But the trials that I'm talking about, this particular trial of these five men, lasted for more than 15 months and involved testimony from 140 witnesses. 
During her closing statement, prosecutor Susan Summers, not to be confused with Suzanne Summers. Okay, so we got Suzanne Summers and Penny Marshall. Penny Marshall. Marshall. It's, yeah. it's Nick at Night. So she stated that Amarska was, quote, extreme evil, comparable with that in Nazi death camps. So the trial of these five men was actually the first time in international trial that any person was convicted of rape as a weapon of war because in the Geneva and Hague conventions that resulted from, you know, the Nazi concentration camps and and other uh, human um, human rights violations, that rape hadn't been part of those conventions. And so this was the first time that it started to be included in the definition of war crimes. So the five men, the first one, his name is, I'm, I know I'm going to get all these wrong. Dragoljub oh, Perjak. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I'm only going to say that that one time. Thank God. So he was a retired police officer and a crime technician at the Omarska police station. He was also deputy commander at the Omarska camp. He was charged with murder and torture and persecution on the basis of political, racial, or religious grounds and received a sentence of five years. Wow. What? Five? Uh-huh. Just wait. Oh, Miroslav no. <laughs> Kvoka was a police op- officer and another deputy commander. Um, he aided in, he was found guilty of instigating, committing, and aiding in aiding and abetting in the torture and beating of many Muslim prisoners. Um, so his official charges were murder and torture, as well as persecution on political, racial, or re- re- religious grounds. He received seven years. Milohika Kos who was a guard shift leader at Omarska, uh, similar charges, received a sentence of six years. And then I'm going to get into the next two, who are pretty horrific. So Mulatto Roddick was a policeman, and he was responsible for overseeing all of the guards at Omarska. So it, it, my impression is he was maybe a level above the previous folks that I just mentioned. Uh-huh. His trial, he was convicted in November 2001, because some of these men, by the way, were like fleeing international (laughs) uh, policing, I guess. They were at large. I would imagine. So he he was found guilty in 2001 of crimes against humanity and three counts of uh, international violation of the laws or customs of war. He was found guilty of raping 40 women prisoners. And he was sentenced to no. 20 years. <sighs> Finally, Zoran Zijic. He was, this is so strange to me. So all of these men were like police up till this moment. Zoran Zijic was a taxi driver. And I think this is where I think oh. the character in the Law and Order episode is supposed to be Zoran. Okay. So he wasn't a police officer. It seems like he was maybe part of the reserves, but he lived near Omarska and he would drive his taxi to Omarska. They would let him in and basically basically give him free reign to just terrorize people. Just so, like for the shits and giggles. For shits and giggles, yes. So Vilyami, the um, uh, journalist that I talked about from The Guardian, he describes him as frenzied leader Zoran Zijic. He was known as the infamous Ziga to prisoners, was said to have killed over 200 people, including many children, in the cleansing operations around Prigidor. He was 
described as scrawny and long-legged with a big black scar on his face. And Giyami describes him as, or sorry, his tormentors described him as like an ancient devil come to visit them from a time as cruel as his own. So he was tried for the torture and rape of prisoners at Omarska and received a sentence of 25 years for his crimes. The judge in his case stated, You enjoyed inflicting pain. You also enjoyed humiliating detainees by forcing them to lap up water like dogs or drink their own blood. So there were, of course, additional trials as part of the ICTY prosecution. Um, Other folks were indicted, found, found guilty of crimes of rape and torture and crimes against humanity. Some of them got sentences as long as 28 years. Others, as I said, only got like six One thing that I didn't go into in great detail is I mentioned the rape camps that were set up. Part of that also involved sexual slavery, human trafficking, and forced prostitution Mm. of people as young as 8 to 10 years old. I was just going to ask if there were kids involved in that too. Sure were. Of course. So... Throughout all of this, over 50,000 of the Muslims who lived in Prigidur before the Bosnian War, less than 6,000 of them remained. Prosecutors said that the rest had either fled or been killed during the ethnic cleansing campaign. Wow. Over 5,000 civilians were killed or went missing. And since this conflict, more than 96 mass graves have been located and In those mass graves, they have fortunately, thanks to DNA, been able to identify 21,000 victims. Wow. Wow. Uh, Sorry. I'm sorry. 2,100. I was going to say 21,000. I mean, that's still huge, though. Yeah. Wow. Um, A mass grave right near the Omarska camp contained the remains of 456 people from the camp, though... President of the Bosnian Government's Commission for Tracing Missing Persons stated that there's no doubt whatsoever that there are hundreds of bodies as yet unfound within the mine Ovomarska and its vicinity. While many of the survivors and their families kind of advocated for the Omarska mine after the conflict to be turned into a memorial that acknowledged the loss of life and the, I guess, instilling a memory so that we don't commit crimes like this again in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, Those plans were later abandoned. It sounds like a company purchased the land around the Omarska mine and it all kind of fell apart. Wow. The United Nations Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict, her name is Margot Wallstrom, she reported that only 12 out of the 50,000 rape cases had been prosecuted as of 2010. And by 2011, ICTY had indicted 93 additional men. So they're doing work to make this happen, but there is still so much much unresolved. Yeah. So to kind of wrap this up, as I was researching this case, obviously I said it's it's really a a heart-wrenching case, and it's a part of our history that I said I never really learned because I was young when it was happening, and I feel like history classes often don't go past the 1980s. So. I was really struck when I was reading all of these articles how often we think of concentration camps and mass imprisonment as things of the past, like the idea that when Germany lost World War II that these things don't happen anymore, but that is not the case. Um, As I was reading these articles, many of them led me down the path of 
current day concentration camps. And so one of the articles I read involved an interview with a man named Dr. Waitman Wade Bourne, who is a professor of history at the University of Virginia. And he really argues that in order for us to accurately understand the past and address the present day crimes and oppression that are happening, we really need to expand our definition of what is a concentration camp, because they haven't always been death camps like Auschwitz. So um, concentration camps have, he says, always been designed to separate one group of people from another group. And that's primarily because the majority group or the creators of the camp deem that the people they're putting into it are dangerous or undesirable in some way. Mm -hmm. So he's saying that not every concentration camp is a death camp, but it's intended to reinforce a dominant religious, national, ethnic, heteronormative, or racial hierarchy. So we in the United States have and continue to employ such strategies. Um, A large aspect of our national history that often we don't talk about is the mass imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Um, And of course, the uh, mass imprisonment of migrants at our border has very horrific conditions that are akin to many of those that we have talked about today and in the study of previous concentration camps. Mm -hmm. Um, But the historian that uh, was talking about this really says we have to understand these through the lens of these being concentration camps because they're we currently call them federal migrant shelters or detainment facilities which yeah. really sanitizes what's happening within them yeah so currently the united states has 52,000 people in custody of immigrations and custom enforcement many of whom are fleeing violence poverty corruption in their country of origin and are seeking asylum but we end up kind of imprisoning them for indefinite terms. There's also, in China right now, currently 120,000 members of China's Muslim Uyghur population who are currently being held in mass detention camps, which are being marketed as, quote, re-education camps, which are intended to change people's political and religious beliefs. Um, And according to Amnesty International, as many as one million people have been detained in these camps, while some other international reports place that closer to three million people. Of course, the North Korean prison system is often also described as similar conditions to those that we've talked about in concentration camps and internment camps. And since 2017, we've had reports of internment camps in Chechnya for the detention of gay and bisexual men. I'm going to wrap up with a quote from professor of sociology and anthropology at Colgate University, whose name is Dr. Jonathan Heislop. He says, it's important here to look at the language people are using. As soon as you get people comparing other groups to animals or insects or using language about advancing hordes that were being overrun or flooded with this sort of thing, it creates a sense of enormous threat. And that makes it much easier to sell people on the idea that we have to do something drastic to control this population, which is going to destroy us. So he's saying that we have to pay very close attention to the way people talk about any population of people because the inhuman rhetoric and the they're a threat to us rhetoric makes it easier for people to justify cruel and inhumane treatment of those people. 
And so, of course, my immediate kind of connection was the way our former president, our former most recent president, talked about immigrants from Mexico. Yeah. And I just think it it was a really, I felt, kind of nice wrap-up to this awful, awful story of we can't just wait for these things to exist before we recognize they're a problem. We really have to recognize the signs of kind of like nationalist rhetoric that precedes imprisonment and torture of populations. Yeah. So that is my very, very quick recap (laughs) of the Bosnian War and the war crimes that occurred during the Bosnian War, especially the mass rape and torture of men and women that inspired this Law and Order episode. Ooh, that was intense. That was heavy. I know. It was such, it was so intense to research all of this. (laughs) Thank you for doing all that work. Jeez. Yeah, but I was glad to do it because I, again, I said like, this is not a story I ever heard growing up. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that it helps other people think about how to prevent things like this from happening. Because again, what really, like, as I was reading it, I was like, this was 1995. Mm -hmm. I was going into high school. Like, it was not that long ago that this was happening. And so, and it's still happening today. And so I think it's really essential that we look at those kinds of things so that we can recognize them when they are happening or start to happen. Yeah, I feel like I learned a lot just even hearing from the hearing your um, recounting of the story. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Oof, man. Well, should we rate the episode, the yeah. Law and Order episode? Uh, I definitely think we should. We need to get back to the Law and Order yeah. episode. I need to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> what do you rate the Law and Order episode? Let's see. For general watchability, I'm going to give it a D minus. Mm-hmm. I did enjoy seeing Chris Maloney and Mariska Hargitay, as I said, but I don't. I didn't care, of course, for the homophobic and transphobic language that occurred throughout and for like how they dealt with (laughs) war crimes during the Bosnian War in like a police unit in New York. I guess that was fine, maybe. So I would rate it a D minus for watchability and I don't know, a C plus for how it dealt with the issue. Yeah, I think I'm going to go D for both. Okay. The only reason it's not getting an F is because I enjoyed the characters that I've missed, like Stabler and yeah. Benson. And also, you enjoyed seeing those tight jeans exactly. on Chris Exactly. I was just going to say, also, those jeans really helped. But, <laughs> yeah, all the queer and transphobic language, like, why? Why? I It knows no purpose. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, D there. And then D for the crime, because I feel like I, w- you know, that's, barely scrapes the surface in the episode and it was a little hard to follow i don't think they really did the best job of really like telling the story in the massive way you did as far as like what really was happening right yeah they were just dealing with that local case yeah so i'll do i'll do d for both okay i think that's fair well, Matt, we just finished our first patreon episode i'm so excited i can't believe it's in the bag already I know. I can't wait for people to hear it. These SVU episodes, I feel like the true crimes are going to be such a downer. (laughs) Not that the ones we cover in our regular uh, show aren't a downer. Yeah, I feel like I'm glad we're doing one a month. (laughs) Yeah, and this one really, I feel like, was a very extreme case that I covered. Yeah, I'm wondering how they're going to, how the early episodes are. Like how 
if they're going to just be hard, heavy hitters every single episode for a while. Thank you, folks, for subscribing to our Patreon. Thanks for listening to this episode. Thanks for supporting our podcast. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's always uncomfortable to ask people to do those types of things like rate, review, subscribe to the Patreon, but we literally are doing it for you guys. We want to give content that's special and we want to give content that's exciting and, and fun. So thank you guys for being a part of it. Thank you guys for building our podcast to the level where we could actually do this kind of thing. Yeah. And by the way, did you know that our podcast is free and we have new episodes every week? So you should subscribe to our podcast if you're not subscribed. And it also costs nothing to write a review and it really helps us out. Exactly. And the best way for other people to find our podcast is through word of mouth. So please tell a friend, tell a coworker, tell your mail person, tell them to find us and post on Reddit or, you know, spread the word any way you can. Yeah. Our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our email is still RippedHeadlinesPod at gmail.com. And we do love getting email from you. So feel free to send us a note and say hi. And if you haven't already, check out our website, RippedHeadlinesPod.com. And we'll be launching a newsletter. We have a merch store coming. Of course, you are already subscribed to the Patreon. So thank you again. Uh, we got a lot of fun things coming up. There are also lots of other great true crime podcasts out there. So if you want to see us collaborate with one, put us in touch. Thank you so much for listening to Riff from the Headlines, where you'll get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next month on our Patreon and every week on our podcast. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.